there's no better course. So, and cross country skiing is meant to be hard. Uh, really fun race. And hi, I'm Rosie Frankowski from AP. See, here we have with the hero Bjorn Daly. That's the great thing about sport. Make it rain. Make make it rain. You play to win. It is. I mean, that's that's our sport. So, toughen up, train harder, and get. Hello and welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Cedarquist, here with you live on Shovel Lake Public Radio, the fastest growing Nordic ski-specific podcast in all of Lake County. We have a lot to get to today, so we're going to hop right into it. And the World Cup has ended, the cup standings have shifted, and you maybe didn't even care about it because uh, Norway, Norway's Johannes Klaba was not there, all of Russia was gone, and uh, it just kind of happened. <laughs> and uh, I even was broadcasting the Holman Colon event for Ski and Snowboard Live, which was a very enjoyable thing to do. Um, I'll talk about the story about that a little bit later. Some of my broadcasting, um, the dream coming true for Ryan Cedarquist to broadcast stuff. But without Klabo, without Bolshinov, without the Russians, uh, it just felt kind of weird. It's a little bit like if you took out the Golden State Warriors or Tom Brady out of the NFL, which, by the way, did you hear that Tom Brady is coming back? Quite an amazing uh, his his uh, Brett Favre Michael Jordan retirement la- uh, the shortest of all of them. Um, I was I was sort of thinking we would see an entire season without Tom Brady and then he might do some really crazy like forty five year old comeback. But I'm thrilled to see that Tom Brady is coming back. He he is quickly risen to perhaps being my favorite major sports athlete, you know, one of the four majors um, sports athletes. So cool, Tom Brady's back. But hey, let's talk about. Let's talk about what happened here on this final weekend because there were some things worth celebrating. I think uh, the and, and again, I didn't watch this. I honestly, I had no interest. So, I think this speaks some volumes. People um, might like discussing how boring, you know, the, on the male side having Klabo versus the Russians or Norwegian Norwegians and Russians just stacking up in the top ten. But the fact that. When the big time players were gone, I I honestly I just that feeling in my in my heart I guess of of oh there's a race tomorrow or there's there's a World Cup this weekend I want to see what happens. The thing that draws us to want to see what happens are what's going to happen with Klaba. What is he going to show us this time? And is Bolshinov going to maintain his lead? What the, the epic uh, duel that we have these giants of the sports duking it out week after week? That is what draws me in. Anyway, and it's part of the reason that I actually am more fascinated, generally speaking, by right now the outcome of the men's races. I will agree that the actual races themselves on the women's side are a little more exciting because it seems like more on any given day someone could emerge. Um, although, <laughs> really, yes, Ashay, do you have something to add? Oh, really, I, I think that on the on the ladies' side in the distance races. It's been a little more one-sided than on the men's even. You got Johag, who is was has been such uh, so far above anyone else, it, just a class of her own, that in, in anything, a 5K, 10K, 15K, 30K, especially all the skiathlon, all that stuff, if Johag's in the field, the races have played out pretty much the same. She blasts it almost from the gun, and then everyone else is fighting for second place. So I, I haven't found those races, honestly, to be... More exciting now. It is more exciting usually that we typically have Americans fighting for podiums on the on the ladies' side. So that to me is often what draws draws me to the to watch the girls' races. But on the guys' side, you want to see the Titans battle it out. 
And in sport, when we have big names and we have stars, people are drawn. And there was just something shallow the last couple of weekends about the outcomes, the winners. Um, I will say Holman Colon, you know, it, the race there in and of it's, it, it has such value inherently the race does so it doesn't really matter who's there or who's gone whoever wins that it's such a big deal it's a career defining moment i found myself excited about the outcome and that that guy's race was was pretty exciting you know you you had niskanen up there you kind of thought that he was going to be the one that they're going to key off of and then these three norwegians come out and tonseth and and shirota and um of course the winner yenget uh, that was all really cool. I, I enjoyed that event. I thought it was a great race. But you're left going, what would have happened if the Russians would have been there? How would that? Think about all the drama that was there and how much more there would have been with a whole Russian squad. And then to top it all off, just the presence of Klabo. His presence in a race is even more than Bolshinov. It, it's just, it adds so much because he is someone who can control the race in so many different ways. So anyway, I found myself very uninterested to even check in on these last few races. I really didn't care. And, and honestly, a win, uh, the, the women's sprint, every, well, all the stars are there. So that's, that's stacked. If, if, you know, Julia Kern's fourth place finish, uh, that was a great result. Um, and, uh, and, and Jesse Diggins actually did great in the, the freestyle individual. I think the relay, the performance, it was pretty cool to read the recap on faster skier. I thought they did a good job of kind of laying out the drama for us. Um, Zach Ketterson had some awesome results here in this last weekend. So there's some, there's some positives to take, but I mean, yeah, all I'm saying is I just really wasn't, wasn't fascinated by tuning in. So I don't know, maybe, maybe you're the same, maybe not. I, I just think it was weird. Now, one thing I'll say about the cup standings, I did not realize this until checking it this morning. Uh, Rika Juve of France took the sprint globe from Clabo by six points. This is insane, people. Clabo, by the way, so tested positive for COVID before mm, Dramen, I think. It, it was right for the Olympics. Like, I, I don't think he he maybe did one World Cup. Here, let's check his fist results. When was Clabo's last race? I'm just blanking here. Clabo, I know he had a comfortable lead in the sprints so his last race with lati okay yeah that's right he did the 15k classic got second place um this is i don't know why people are making a bigger deal of this Clabo could have been the first person ever to win the overall win the sprint and theoretically really win the distance especially when bolshnov was uh kicked out because going into uh lati uh or after lati he trailed bolshnov by five points now, even if Bolshinov would have been allowed to compete and Klabo would have been there all these last weekends, that would have been an unbelievable race to watch down to the wire. Um, Klabo in that Holman colon would have had an excellent shot of winning the 50K. I, I, he really would have. It, the way it was set up, I bet there would have been the big dog slowing the pace down or whatever. It was good conditions. I think he could have hung in sprint just like he did in the World, Cup, or in the World Championships in 2021. Okay, so fa fans just were totally robbed of some extremely exciting skiing um and by the way i i will say this i, I posted an article about the whole ukraine russian um the, the war that's going on and some of my thoughts on that i understand that war is awful and we should be doing what we can to stop it i think my key argument is 
I don't think preventing the Russians um, from competing is uh, is an effective tool to to effectuate change and and stop that stop the war. I honestly, I just don't think I don't think Putin cares really about that. I think that pressure. I don't think that pressures him to change himself at all. I could be wrong, but I I think um, yeah, I just don't. So. I'm a I'm a little bit more on the side that um, you know Russian athletes being punished for for these actions of their dictatorial leader. I don't know. I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's a, a good idea. And and we kind of came right down to the end here. Now I, I will say with Madeleine Aprieva, Bolshinov in the positions they were, if there would have been a effectuate like, hey, we're not going to let these guys finish the season. There's only a couple races left. They're going to be totally screwed over. Um, Maybe that's the one scenario where something could have happened, but I don't know. I think there's other ways, and I, I just think it's kind of sad. And I think what it also what it does it it only reinforces this Russian bad guy mentality that we already have in global athletics. And I'm not really a fan of that. I I think there's something intrinsic in human nature to want to have a bad guy to uh, like root against. You know, every league needs the New York Yankees that everyone can hate, so to speak. And Russia is that for the entire world, it seems. Now, some of it is earned. There is an element of Russia bringing that upon themselves with systematic dopings, the schemes there, some of that, some of the things they've done over the past half century, full whole century, last hundred years. But I just I don't like it in, in general as as something that people are coming in with these preconceived notions. And yeah, it's just. I don't think it's healthy from a human to human perspective. I mean, uh, Russian Russian people are people too. And and if you were born as a Russian athlete and were just grew up in that culture and you're dedicated and you want to be great, you're not any different than someone who grew up anywhere else and wanted to be great. And you don't get to choose what history you're born into as far as your government's history or your country's history. Um, so I I just think this is only taking us many many steps back. And, you know, we live in an era where people are very quick to talk about racial injustices and minority groups and um, all of that stuff. And and yet when it comes to Russia, it's like that's the punching bag we can just everyone can let all out on. And so I, that's another thing that that I, I feel like this move is only doing. We're canceling Russian culture and people are just hating on that. And again, maybe some of it right now with the war um, you know, Putin had it coming. But couldn't you say that about a lot of other regimes we see in the world, whether it's China, uh, whether it's some of the, uh, you know, very violent uh, regimes we've seen in the Middle East? I don't I don't know. It, it just kind of feels a little bit like uh, the the white collar society is, you know, the one the one the, the one punching bag we all could agree on is Russia. You know, let's all get let's all get behind that. Because even there's even people, journalists, athletes, media, um, you know, following ski that are, are really going over the top celebrating China's emergence here in the World Cup. And there are athletes that have done really well. It's it's it is kind of exciting from, a, oh, here's a new country and an athlete, a team. You know, what a great story. They've hardly been skiing at all. And now that here they are. Yeah, that's cool and all. But but I mean, come on. How are we celebrating that country that to me, I would I would almost go. You know, that is pretty cool that your athletes like that. But because of the actions of your communist regime in China, 
I refuse to celebrate those. <laughs> so like if you're going to make an arbitrary decision to not celebrate Russia, not allow Russia, just totally cancel Russian culture, but then on the on the flip side, worship what China is doing. That seems kind of weird. And I've noticed that with some with some outlets that I follow. So I don't know, somewhat of a disappointment. My wife told me I can't drink coffee on the air, but it's just too hard to click the pause button. So we're live here, Shovel Lake Public Radio. Oh, so anyway, back to Clabo. Clabo could have won all three. No one's ever done that. Here's the other thing. Clabo really had that sprint title like wrapped up, wrapped up and secured. I'm sure he thought that when he announced his little, I have COVID. Yeah, sure, you have COVID. You just want to go back to Trondheim, sit in your bungalow and eat cake because you think that you have the overall wrapped up what you did. He was leading by 10 trillion points and he figured no one's going to catch me in the sprint either. I'll be fine. Well, no one told Ricard Juve, the 27-year-old Frenchman, that that was the case. And he goes out and let's see, in Lauti, he gets in the sprint seventh. Then in Dramen, he wins. In Oslo, in the 50K, gets 50th. And then in Sweden, he wins again. So he wins the last two sprints. Um, and by the way, at the Olympics, at the Olympic Games, he was, oh, he was seventh in the sprint. For some reason, I was thinking, oh, the team sprint, he got a silver, me- silver medal, looks like. No, I'm looking at the no. They got seventh in the team sprint too, so I guess he walked away medalist, medalless from the Olympic Games. Uh, but wins the final two sprints on the World Cup and steals what would have been Clabo's fifth sprint uh, globe. Really, if you deep dive at that list too, Clabo he when he arrived 2016-2017 was his first sprint globe. He won four in a row starting then. He did not win last year. Of course, they pretty much didn't compete last year. So, I mean, he was he could have been looking at a fifth in a row there, most certainly. Uh, Federico Pellegrino won that year. And then this year, he would have been back on track winning his fifth. Of course, that is the most of all time. The next most um, is three by Ola Vigen Hedestad of Norway. Uh, and Emil Johnson Johnson has three as well. He won three in four years. No one has dominated sprint sprint skiing like Johannes Klabo, right? The coolest part, though, would have been the Triple Crown. So, I don't know. I, I feel like, in, are people in the Norwegian media making a big deal out of this? Like, he just totally threw that away. I mean, maybe there really is something to be said that he couldn't have done anything about it because of COVID rules, but... I got to admit, I don't know when he tested positive for that, but it was at least two weeks ago. I mean, it was right after Lauti. So like the last day of February, seems like he he maybe could have come back. But I, I just kind of think he had the weight of the world going to the Olympics. This was a, a big year for him, a stressful year. Maybe he was just like, you know, I won the overall. I don't really care if I win another sprint globe. But I think in the end of time, in the end of days, and we're looking back like, Every little global title for Clabo is gonna is gonna matter, and you just have no guarantees. Next year might be full slate; new people will emerge. Winning all those things are gonna be is gonna be trickier. There's definitely no way he would have had the opportunity he had this year to do the triple crown. That's never gonna resurface again for him. There's just no chance. He's gonna have to get way more determined to win distance races to do that. And it just would have been such an amazing uh, display of dominance, the year of Clabo. And uh, and that's kind of something we talked about back in November on this show was, hey, this this is going to be the year Clabo just 
puts the hammer down from November to March. And, and he did kind of do that. It's been a little bit of a roller coaster. You know, we started with the the odd um, him getting beat at his own game by Trentev and that sprint in Ruka. Then he comes back and just dominates the month of December, wins the Tour de Ski. He's looking like he can win at every distance. Um, and at the Olympics, it's a shaky mix. Yeah, he won the sprint that he was supposed to. He won the team sprint that he was supposed to. Relay didn't go the way he wanted to. Distance races really didn't go the way he wanted to. Gets sick. Pulls out the bronze in that 15K Classic. That was as good of a result as you could have asked for Clabo. But in reality, I think there were some people who were thinking he could win that race. And, and honestly, I think he could have. If Niskanen doesn't put together the race of his life, um, which he did, and then Bolshinov as well. I mean, basically, Klabo got bronze because the two guys who were arguably better than him, you know, ha- raced at 105% capacity, and Klabo was probably 99% capacity. So, you know, that that it just, I, I don't know if you could say the Olympics were a resounding success for Klabo. They were definitely sufficient because he did not have a disastrous, you know, silver medal in the sprint or something like that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the haul that maybe some people thought was possible after the world championships. Uh, I know I was kind of on this uh, the side of thinking, man, it seems like either Bolshanov or Klabo is going to own the Olympics. And I think Bolshanov owned it, you know, uh, with going, what was it, five for five in terms of medals, five events, five medals. So... I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's it's just a weird ending, you know, and, and I don't feel like anyone's really making a big deal out of that, that he lost the sprint by six points. That is, I mean, all that would have had to happen is, is Juve gets second in one of those events, you know, and, and I'm sure Klabo was thinking, like, what are the chances that he's going to win both? Because if I'm not there, it is pretty even. You got Pellegrino, you got Shanova. Um, you even have some other Norwegians. I mean, it didn't help that the Russians were were canceled from that, but... Anyway, and then, of course, we have the distance stuff in the men's side here. The distance, uh, man, I, when I was wa- watching Holman Colon, so here's the broadcast story, by the way. Um, the first broadcast I did with Lauti, I wrote this in my blog, too. It was kind of a little bit nerve-wracking where, well, I, you know what? I'm not going to get to this. If you want to read more of this story, go to cedarskier.com. If you're not doing that already, I don't know what's wrong with you. You obviously have issues. But we we write blogs up there. We put Cedar Scare Sprinter stories up there. You can see pictures of Novi up there. Uh, you can find out what I eat before races. Hint, it's nothing, not even two slices of bread like that one V's Mesquite Classics guy. Okay. Um, where was I? So Holman Colon. I was doing the broadcast from Moorhead, Minnesota for the Holman Colon race, the Boston Marathon of Nordic Skiing. And I noticed that the first five bonus points went to Niskanen unchallenged. So they have those bonus points every 3.3 kilometers. I'm noticing Niskanen, not really the sprinter exactly. I mean, he does have a sprint medal, sprint relay medal, I think, from from two Olympics. Uh, I think, 2014 and then this last one. But he's he's not really what you'd think of as totally an explosive athlete okay he's won those more on the 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 backs of his amazing classic technique and in beijing even the sprint was kind of like i don't know like a 10k just the way the nature of the course and the weather and the snow but niskanen it was almost like the norwegians were were doing like a let's stick it to the, the russians here we're just gonna we'll usher niskanen to the front of the first five time checks and then you know 42k or whatever like it, it's anyone's race because that it just seemed like that's what happened. Niskanen gets he's trailing Bolshinov 
I want to say by 18 points going into this race. And he came out, you know, 450 points in front of him, I think. He he ended up winning the um, distance globe, 493 to Bolshnov's 418. There's no way Niskanen wins that if uh, Bolshnov and Klabo are there. There's just not. I mean, because really, even if Bolshnov just has so-so races, he really just has to show up, and he's going to beat Niskanen. And really, the only challenge would have been from Klabo. If Klabo has, like, you know vintage domination Klabo. I think Klabo could challenge Bolshinov. But in this case, again, shallow win. So you got Niskanen. He wins the globe. Good for him. I love Niskanen. I think it's sweet that um that he he gets the globe. However, is it is it really that sweet? Because he didn't beat the Russian to do it, right? It's it's again, we go back to this. Now I'm gonna, you know, be double standard here, but the Russians are the bad guy we can all beat up against. So it would have been cool if Niskanen, the good guy, you know, Finn, uh, Finn Sisu, right? He could have come in from his sauna and taken the crown from Bolshinov just straight up. But no, we sideline the bully and he's not even there to do anything about it. And Niskanen steals it, you know? And even if Bolshinov's gone, having Klabo there, you know, I, I get it. We can't, that you can't punish them for who didn't show up, but it, it's getting to be that, that even that statement is starting to lose its meaning because Fis is just, Oh, you had COVID 10 months ago. You can't compete this week. You know, Oh, you didn't wear a mask yesterday. Sorry. You're, you can't do it. Oh, we, um, we are, we canceled next week's event and we're not going to do anything to replace it. Like there were what three world cups that didn't even get contested this year. They should just, cut off half of the trophy and say, well, this is, you know, emblematic of what the season was about. So here's your globe, sir. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Diedrich Tunseth was fifth in the distance rankings this year. That's just crazy. I, that guy, it seemed like he was done last year. So all over the place. I just, I don't know what to think. The last race I was going to say, you know, for the Americans, great, cool thing that happened in the relay. I think that's like, Maybe kind of the best thing we could see for our, for our U.S. contingents, as far as like um, an upbeat heading into the off season thing, because our Americans had a little bit of a up and down sort of Olympic peak and and World Cup season as well. I think if you're Jess Diggins, you can't really ask for much more. You won two medals at the Olympics. And really that silver medal, Skiathlon, they got the full race. There was nothing there. You've got Yohag there. All the best people. Like, she can hang her hat on that race really for a career, a career race. And that's what that was. Um, One of the all-time performances in winter Olympic sport altogether, you know, and of course, Matt Futterman has legend. The legend of Matt Futterman has just only done more work to idolize and pedestalize this performance. But you know, so she had a great Olympics. On the flip side, you look at Rosie Brennan, and you kind of go, you know, she she had one of those. Reminds me of like my mom missing NCAA All American by one place, you know, three times, and just kind of one of those Olympics that is going to go down. For the common person and the common fan, they're, they're never going to like remember or know the name Rosie Brennan because she was fourth or fifth, you know, and, and the relay, that was the one race, of course, that didn't go their way. And she did all, she did everything she could in these Olympics and really performed amazing, but has nothing to show for it. And that, you know, so you got that. 
you have the mystery of Gus Schumacher the whole year. You know, he's our star, and and here he is kind of slipping and sliding at every race. Uh, meanwhile, these the juniors that he competed against and beat, like Porima from Sweden, he's just, you know, blossoming. Um, and so that's kind of mysterious. And I almost actually wonder if there's something about um, Schumacher health related that could be like tied back to the virus. I know that sounds like totally conspiratorial, uh, but we've just had so much, um, you know, stuff with pro athletes as far as COVID or the vaccine that it, it does make you wonder. And you know, if that was the case, they would never say that on the, on the U S ski team, they would, they would not be the, the type of people that would be, um, I guess, looking for the opportunity to go yeah see he had covid and it's a five month you know layover thing or yeah you know it was weird his booster shot ever since he got that you know he really slid down there have honestly i was just reading the let's run.com message boards they were talking about an article out of australia and their world you know stewie mcswain the world-class 1500 meter runner hasn't been the same since he got his booster shot here's a guy who's a 327 1500 meter runner he races all the time um so high volume of racing high level of of those races um one of the fittest people on the planet you know and and they're even on that discussion if you kind of look back the coach is a, a little bit like i'm not really sure if this is from covid or if it's from the booster shot um, but definitely he went downhill after he got that booster shot. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be the type of person who goes, yeah, see, there's your evidence. It, it might be causation. It might not, it might be coincidental, but it's still, it's, I, I would guess our U.S. ski team, if that were the case, or even if it was possible, they would not let that slide, but it does make you kind of wonder like uh, how much of those things could be related to that. Because wh- why else would, why would Gus Schumacher really be slipping? He's not He's not over racing, you know, and, and especially the World Cup today, there's just not that many um, killer races out there. And what I mean by that is like, you know, 350Ks in a six-week span. It seems like our World Cup is a lot more sprint-based. Um, you know, there's some individual starts in there, but they're, they're just, they're not that heavy on races that would that would really wear you down, I don't think. So, I don't know. It is a mystery. Gus didn't even race, you know, at the end of uh, this season. So there, there's another kind of downside. And yeah, the American, the American season. How do you, how do you analyze it and rank it? It's difficult to do, I think. Uh, but, but I think you could say too, coming into it with with Dickens being okay. She's the overall uh, global winner, but we didn't have Nor- Norway there. I kind of want to see how she responds. As a fan, I was pleased, and I thought, you can't really ask for much more. Really, the turning point for Diggins was in that Tour de Ski. If she doesn't get clipped by Frida Carlson, this whole season probably looks different because the Tour de Ski has so much weight in the overall scoring that threw her out of that contest. Um, Neprieva wins that and builds a monstrous lead in the overall standings, which she holds all the way to the end. So Neprieva, despite missing those last um, couple of World Cups, still won by almost 200 points. She had 973 points. Diggins second, 793. Um, and so I think that's that's kind of some, a moment you look back on and go, wow, what if we were sort of thinking, uh, you know, I guess, who cares in the long run? It does stink because now she can't try to defend her Tour de Ski crown. I still think it's a little crazy how that, like, um, you know, 
prevented her or or threw her out of contention completely. It seemed like people were like, well, now she's done. It's It was kind of like in my mind, how is that possible? I mean, there there was a lot a lot of skiing left to go, and she did not ski particularly well the rest of that tour. You know, she she was the third place finisher, I think, on our team in the final event. And so I, I don't know if Diggins kind of mailed it in thinking I'm too far back anyway, but either either or that that was a huge moment. The distance rankings for the women, um, Yoha Gwynn, 735, Carlson second, 480. How crazy is that? Free Carlson, who is, you know, again, pretty much absent for the last two months on the World Cup, just dying every step of the way. Almost got passed by Parmakovsky, 475, so just five points back. The sprint title, another thing that's interesting here, you know, when you look at Jana Sundling, who is really the the skier that people are, I'm sure, are going to be looking at next year, the major threat in the overall, now that she's established herself as a distance threat, a dominant sprint skier. She didn't even win the sprint overall, though, because Maya Dahlquist, you know, dominated so early so she had 638 points Sundling 442 in third behind Anna Marie Lampich so Diggins fourth in that sprint if we look at the overall rankings again let's take a look at the Americans of course Diggins was in second Rosie Brennan finished 14th 491 points um on the year Julia Kern 20th in the World Cup really good year for her honestly I mean especially after she was kind of one of those athletes Last year, it was like, man, I don't know. It seems like we've maybe given her um, too much opportunity. When you think about some of these hungry athletes that are back in America racing the Super Tour, how come Kern really is getting all these opportunities? She had one World Cup podium. It was from a long time ago. You know, it, I think it was at Drammen or something. It was one of the more like uh, lower key sprint races, it seemed like. But man, she really proved herself uh, this year. And now I'm looking back at the Olympics and going, I think, I think she should have gotten a little bit more of a chance. Not sure exactly where you would have placed her, um, but it does make you wonder if if she's on even the sprint relay, as crazy as that sounds. I mean, how do you take out Brendan or Diggins? I don't know if you really could, but you, you do have to wonder if Kern has her best performance, she probably is better than one of those athletes. Uh, it's question mark. Brennan and Diggins are so reliable typically that you would just go with them, but Anyway, she'll be exciting to watch. I think she could be someone who kind of contends for a top five podium position. So there's the World Cup roundup. <laughs> for not caring, I had a lot to say, I guess, about that. Uh, I, I turned this on like, oh, maybe I should maybe I should talk about the World Cup since that did finish. But I didn't even watch these last few races. I just, I wasn't, I didn't care. And um, yeah, I think there's, again, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart. I... I like watching the Russian athletes compete. I'm not going to lie. And I think there is certainly a side of me that is, and again, I know this is a double standard, is uh, the the Russians are the bad guys. We kind of need them there to hate on, you know? I also kind of feel about that about Norway, though, too. Norway has this idealistic, they do sport correctly, you know, they care about the whole individual, not just competition and winning. Yeah, 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 that's great. We love you, Norway, for it. And Norway is probably the sweetest country in the world. If I could live anywhere, it'd be Norway. But it is kind of fun to have them, as far as competition goes, be that giant that we want to try and take down. When they're not there, it doesn't really mean as much to to win, to get on the podium. It just doesn't. And to have both them and Russia there, I think it's great for the sport because you want to see the Titans clash. You want to see these big names. Who's going to come out on top? Who's racing well? It just it, it totally heightens the atmosphere. 
I'm not the type of person who needs to see 20 different winners in the 20 different races on the World Cup. No, I, I like seeing people who you who you start to go, we expect them to win. So when they don't, there's an element of drama. Um, but so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't care about what was going on and, and it, I don't think they did have as much meaning. So it, there's a little bit that's taken away from that. Anyway, let's move on. All right. We're back here on the Cedar Skier podcast. Fresh snow falling here in Leadville. We have, oh, I don't know, maybe two inches or so. It's time for the Izzy's Cheesebone Cedarskier.com Trail Report. Wow. Thank you. Interim producer Ajay with the mix there. Appreciate that one, Ajay. Yeah, trail report. Uh, yesterday, probably the best day for classic skiing all year. And I was at a place, most unlikely place to enjoy that Snow Mountain Ranch for the 50K classic race. Saturday was the 50K Skate race, the Snow Mountain Stampede, and usually I I think this race one of the days typically is perfect, and one of them is usually the exact opposite. And often it's falling snow, wind, sometimes cold even, but you're you're usually going to have to put up with the elements in a negative way. But this year that was not the case, and the Snow Mountain Ranch Stampede really just an amazingly enjoyable event and. It is kind of one of those, I don't know, talking points a little bit for the citizens, racers, grip wax nation, get out your pitchforks right now, because when we talk about marathon racing and all of its problems, I think the Snowmont Ranch Stampede kind of sits near the pinnacle. It's, it is, it costs a lot. It often, it doesn't really offer you much in return, although they gave out some old clister, so you know you're going to need to be using that a lot here in Colorado. I think that's funny. The, the little, you know, the gift bags. It's like, hey, you can choose a free pair of socks and clister. I mean, they didn't even give you a hat this year. You, you often, you usually have like the Snowman Ranch Stampede hat that we've gotten that the last couple of years. So I don't know why they didn't even make those. I mean, yeah, it, they don't have a meal. Oh, they used to have a meal when I did this race like four years ago, my first ever race, and and they almost closed up the course before I finished. It was it was one of those blizzard days, and I remember like walking in my skate skis to try to finish. Uh, I came in and and even though everyone was done with like awards and they were starting to move out, they still gave me a burger. So you know it was a good day. Uh, but they don't even do that anymore. So small small crowds, high cost. It's just not a good mix. But they do have excellent an excellent trail system and it is kind of worth going there if you haven't been to snow mountain ranch you should go and check it out it's it probably is i mean we have 120k of trails how can you not have something that's pretty good their trail system is awesome and props to the new nordic program director i think his name's todd lodwick and i think he's a former olympian too like maybe like six time olympian or something crazy i I gotta do the google search quick i was correct Quick Google search, Wikipedia tells me that he was an American Nordic Combine skier, 94, 98, 02, 06, 2010, and 2014. That is six Olympics. Oh my gosh, that is so awesome. Can you imagine having that kind of a career? Six Olympics. He did win a silver medal in 2010 in the team event. He was fourth in the individual, 0.76 by in third place. 
in 2010, the Norma Hill 10K event. So Todd Ladwick, he's kind of changed, I think, in some ways, some of the uh, you know, quality of the Nordic side. I hope it continues to improve. And he seems like the kind of guy that maybe would be receptive to some crazy ideas. Like, I think it'd be awesome to have that January 15th classic race, which is an awesome 15K. Maybe like also having the same course doing a 50K on that. Like we're talking World Cup vert, you know, six laps of a seven and a half K or eight K loop and you're going to gain like 6,000 feet of vertical in it. It'd be tough. That would be kind of fun. Um, But anyway, I digress. He changed up the course this year for the Stampede. Usually the Stampede is your Holman Colon event, Holman Colon event, two by 25K laps. Gun goes off. See you later. We hope you survive. When you get back here, you can get a feed. <laughs> it is often pretty epic. I mean, last year there was some hardcore bonking. We had falling snow, uh, really tough conditions in the classic race. Uh, I, I was fortunate to uh, come out on on top in that race, but I think my time was maybe three hours and like 28 minutes. And that's it. that was a good time. Most people were like over four hours. So uh, it was that kind of day. And even that the last 8K, I remember thinking – that I, I took a feed with like 10K to go because they have one at the kind of finish line area. And, I, and after I took that, I felt 100 times worse. So I must, you know, I kind of gone over the edge and 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 it was and was in trouble and didn't really realize it until I took something. And I was really concerned about my physical safety, to be honest, in the last 8K because you're out kind of in rough territory. No one's going to see you. Like if you fall, I mean – the people behind me were like, oh, we've found him. He's alive. But but it was, yeah, I was just like doing whatever I could to get to the finish line, going very, very slow on uphills, just trying to not get my heart rate too high because it was, it was starting to turn into fight or flight. So that's the kind of race it usually is. That's my picture of what the Snow Mountain Ranch race is. And this year they made it four by 12 and a half K loops and using some different trails. Not going to lie, I loved it. From a double pole perspective, I did not like it from the authentic old school two by twenty five k loop. But but I'm sort of like okay, trying to weigh what do I want more, you know. And for yesterday, this was perfect. It was really fast. It was flowy. You were in the tracks the whole time. I was able to double pole everything except for um, there was like two pitches that you you would have had to herringbone anyway. You know they were they were very steep. Um, so there's two spots where I had to hop out of the tracks for, you know, 10 strides and do it. And then there was still one very punishing long climb on the farthest reach of the course. They took out their most far climb, but they, they did have another one in there and, and it was in the sun. It was hot. And, and it, it, the thing about someone ranch is their climbs, the long ones, they get steeper, the farther they go. And that's what makes it hard. You're, you're kind of like, could I double pull this? Well, it's not just about having strength and endurance. You have to you have to know that the hardest part is it comes to the end. It almost becomes a mental challenge more than anything. So I was very much in this race kind of only thinking about that long grind climb that I had to do four times. Like I was just sort of mentally recharging the rest of the lap to do that. But everything else in the la- on the on the lap was, you know, really a nice gradual climb. It was a difficult double pull course. <clears throat> from a like a mental and aerobic standpoint, three thousand feet of climb, you know, but but it was smooth. All the grades were, you know, between one and six percent, and it was kind of actually more like there would be 
two miles at one percent and then there was like a section where it was four to five and that was kind of harder and then there was of course the the crazy climb that was that was really difficult and that one maybe even got up to seven percent at the end of it or something um but it wasn't like a midwest course that i would say is tough to double pole where you've got just continual steep pitches over and over and that's more like what giants ridge was like that giants ridge course wasn't really a double pole friendly course you know it could be done but you're you're gonna be having to herringbone on numerous occasions um so just the difference of that was was interesting because it did feel like as i was going i was kind of like how many how many other skiers other than the visma guys although it would be interesting like i really wish i could have had a, a Visma athlete out there too, because their courses aren't, aren't this punishing in the same, like at altitude climbing all the time. You know, there's a lot of long flat sections in a lot of those Visma marathons. It would have been interesting to have someone out there doing it, uh, with me. I would have loved to have seen it. It just kind of felt like one of those courses that was tailor made, you know, for my skill set, I guess. And Anyway, I, I won't keep talking. You, you didn't come to the Cedar Skier podcast. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you came here to listen to me give my personal race report. Uh, what I was saying, though, is best, because this is the snow report, right? Uh, best classic conditions, amazing grooming. It was a treat to be out there. I was so happy that I went there. Even if I would have gotten the doors blown off me and not not been fortunate to win that race, it would have still been worth it. Cause it was just How many times do you get a, a rock-hard, firm, double classic track course that the tracks are are the fastest they can be and you can just flow through it for two and a half hours i mean it was it was an awesome day now we've got a few inches of snow i have no idea what's going to happen out here in the mineral belt mineral belt grooming is a little sketch this year people so if you're here in the leadville community you cannot count on it last year we had the, the primitive husky groomer that thing makes a difference i mean it hammers it into the ground classic track firm you can double pull this year we have not had that they bumped the classic track way over to the right so you've got your poles punching through you know it's just kind of miserable and last time they groomed it they didn't even set a classic track for like the entire dutch henry side like what is going on i went for a run yesterday and I went up to the dog pound side and they did have a classic track. So the mystery continues right now. I have no idea what is going on in the mineral bell grooming crew's mind. What is their plan? Who knows? I think the citizens of Leadville don't really care the same way. There's a few of us who care like, hey, my pole is punching through on the outside. I think most people could give a rip about that. But the good news is CMC has had some good grooming and they've got a Husky now. So whatever CMC grooms, that's the place to be. That is a noticeable difference. It's much firmer. When they set a classic track, it's amazing. I wish they did more often. Again, it's like, does the guy fall asleep at the wheel? He'll just like drop a classic track once, you know, for a, a hundred meter section and then it's nowhere else. That was the case last time. You know, we had, I, I, I brought my classic skis out going, oh wow, CMC groom, there's going to be a classic track. I'll look for all the spots. No classic track anywhere except one hundred meter stretch randomly. Uh, I don't know what the, what there, there was plenty of snow. They definitely could have dropped it anywhere. Um, and, you know, two weeks prior, they had classic track on the whole thing. So I don't know what their calculus is, but yeah, that's um, that's your grooming report. It's time for the Izzy's Cheesebone Cedarskier.com trail report. All right, here is something that will just not leave the the news cycle i brought up matt futterman fame of matt futterman and just he can't it's just 
he's so famous now for saying, talking about Nordic skiers' bodies. And I'm, I'm about ready to be done with this because I'm just flabbergasted by how much, how much press we're getting out of this. You know, multiple personal accounts, commentaries, opinions, getting published in, in major media outlets beyond just faster skier too. I mean, this is all over. So this came to my inbox somehow. I don't, I don't really know how, I think I might be subscribing to outside online, which I, I might need to cancel outside. They're just, they've gone the way of the woke a little too far. Okay. So if you're someone out there and you're listening, you're like, I'm woke. Do you hate me? No, that's not what I'm saying. But outside it's kind of, they just, you'll see when I read this article. So outside Posted, and this is by Christine Yu, March 8th, 2022. The title is, When Will We Finally Stop Commenting on Women's Women Athletes' Bodies? Subheadline is, Critiques about body size and type can not only cause physical and mental harm, but also reinforce implicit gatekeeping in sports. Okay. Now, on the outset, I actually... I, I, I'm going to look... Here's the definition of gatekeeping. Because on the outset, I think there's some things I actually agree with her take on. Um, but it's kind of a... Two things can be true at once because the same things I agree on, I think you, you can split her claims into two avenues and one of them I don't agree with and the other one I do. So gatekeeping, the activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something. I do think critiques about body size and type, there is kind of an implicit and, and this is bad. I don't think this is a good thing with coaches, um, parents even. Uh, mentors, where they look at an athlete and they are definitely sizing them up all the time. Like, oh, this person would be really good at at this sport. And it's all based on body type. That happens all the time. My, my wife just came into the studio and said, you do that. I do do that. And um, and sometimes it's, it's uh, I, I think it's actually in a, in a positive way if I'm like saying, you know, I think you could be good. At, at Nordic skiing because you're tall, you have sort of this, uh, I'm thinking of my brother right now. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he, he has a, a strength that, that kind of, you wouldn't expect from someone who is so lean. So like his grip is really strong. He's someone who could just like walk up to a pull-up bar without any training and probably gut out like 19 pull-ups. You know, and when he does train, I, I think he's done, you know, three sets of 25 before. Uh, and it's a, a sinewy kind of like a, yeah, like a, he has that natural um, innate genetic strength. And then on top of that, he's tall and he's long so and lean. And you, you, you size that, you go, man, you could really be a good Nordic skier. Now, <clears throat> I think in some ways, this is good and bad because it is definitely doing what the author is saying here, kind of gatekeeping. Like, there's your prototypical body type for Nordic skiing. And I don't think that's that's a positive, that we that we have sort of made that a thing. Um, but it, on the same token, it, it can be a positive when you do find some person maybe you're a high school teacher or something you go i'm gonna give this person encouragement like i think you could have potential at this point you should give it a shot see if you're any good at it um and so can you say that's bad you know like that person maybe only comes up to that kid because of an uh looking over their body type and and it definitely happens in other sports you know, like basketball obviously if you are tall and fast or you see this in track and field a lot you know you should try decathlon um 
And, and in fact, it's so prevalent that I, I think to say we should never do that might be harmful too. So if you if you are, let's say, a track coach and you want to try to put athletes and kids in the event that best suits them, there's no denying the fact that if you have if you're if you're tall and fast and explosive and flexible, you could be a great decathlete. And you and a good coach can just watch a person move in other events or even just in general and kind of go, I think that person has the makings of this event. And so to just go, wow, we shouldn't be gatekeeping at all, and I should really wash my mind of those sorts of thoughts. Well, that's not necessarily beneficial because that coach might be might be guiding someone into their into their greatest potential. So how do we balance this? Because at the same time, you might have someone who's like five foot nine and they they break all the rules of a great decathlete, and yet they're really good. And I think actually, you know, we look at Brian Clay, he was kind of like that in some ways compared to um, some of the other great decathletes that we've had through American history. <clears throat> and that's just one event. And so in Nordic skiing, you, you do see a lot of different body types these days uh, that are having success. So I think in general, she is she makes a good point that gatekeeping on this is isn't good because it sort of crushes those dreams of kids, girls and boys who are like, oh, well, I don't really fit that mold, so I could never be good at that sport. Like, we don't we don't want that. So there's one thing that's true. <clears throat> now, the reason I'm going to read this article, though, isn't really have anything to do with her take on this. It is because she made some pretty crazy, um, she makes a pretty crazy statement about halfway through this that I just think if you, it, it, it can't, it can't be proven. And it's just a wild statement. And then the other thing that, that I'm going to bring up here is later on in this article, she cites someone and I clicked the link and it brought me to a bizarre place. So those are the two things. There's your tease. Hang on for this article. I'm going to skip ahead. Okay. The introduction to this article, just to give you sort of the spark notes version. Basically, she says, you know, she read the New York Times article. She sees the quote by Futterman. She thinks it's crazy. She um, mentions that. Um, there was tons of backlash in the media. Okay. And so actually cites faster skier cites other, other sources. Um, and actually I'll bring it up to the second tease first here, because in the first part, part article, she says this, the article sparked the media backlash. Readers were quick to categorize. This as the latest example of an insidious double standard in which media outlets reporting on sports focus on the athletic achievements of men yet persistently objectify the bodies of women. Okay. Wait a minute. That is, that's not true either. People size up men's bodies all the time. Michael Phelps. How many times did you hear about how this person's body was designed for swimming? They would mention how he has the wingspan of like a seven foot 10 guy. His feet are like triple jointed and they're size 20. I mean, he, he literally, if you, if he wasn't a swimmer, you'd look at him and go, that's kind of a strangely built human being, you know, and, and reporters talked about that all the time. And in fact, they attributed that to his success. In some ways you could be, if you were Phelps, you go, what the heck? Like, oh, so I'm a bionic man and I'm good at swimming because I have all these traits, you know, and I didn't work hard. He probably was ticked about that to some degree. I think that's a crazy and this is again this is outside getting away with this if you said that the other way you would get just lambasted so sometimes I, I feel like people need to be more fair in their writing that's that's a crazy statement you know media outlets uh they focus on the athletic achievements of men but they objectify the bodies of women 
That's crazy. And in fact, if you are a reporter these days or you're a broadcaster play-by-play, you know that when you are commenting on a women's event, especially endurance athletes, at this point, you know that you better be careful what you say. You know it because you don't want to be the next viral YouTube sensation. You don't want to be the next person. You don't want to be the next Matt Futterman. Okay, so people are definitely like, oh my gosh, can't, yeah, I gotta be careful here. It's the same thing, you know, with gender stuff, with racial stuff, all that. You know, they, they're watching what they say. And in fact, sometimes they're trying so hard, they mess up. Um, did I bring up, oh no, ooh, yeah, I did not bring this up in my last YouTube or my last podcast, guys, but I was watching the USATF indoor track and field championships, and Des Linden was doing commentary and, um, there was a um, transgender, a- no, no, not transgender athlete. Actually, I, I think um, now I'm now I'm blanking on the name of the 1500 meter runner, um, but she's competing in the girls' races. She's biological or biological sex. She's a, a woman. She doesn't. She she considers herself to be some days a girl, some days a boy, uh, but she competes in the, the female events. But pronouns are they them. And Des Linden knows that and wanted to make a statement that I'm going to be the guy, I'm going to be the girl who says they, them. I'm not going to mess that up. And so what does she do? She comments on the athlete and says she six times in a row. And it was unbelievable. It was, she said she, she, oh, I mean, they, them. And then she said she, she, they, them. She corrected herself six times and then at the end just said she. So it was like, you know, she came in, Des Linden did, with the idea of I'm going to get this right and couldn't do it. Okay, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just coming back. Okay, come back to this article. Um, here's the next. So that line is crazy, I think. I, I don't, Christine, you, I, I've, I think that's, that's, a, that's a big step to say. I know I'm going to be probably in the minority for saying that. Anyway, next line. Others found the commentary simply boring. Could he not come up with a more interesting analysis of the race? So the word others is linked. I clicked on the link. This is others found the commentary simply boring. This link brought me to a YouTube channel called Sherry and Elizabeth Talk Women's Sports and Sports Media. Um, now, these are two... I, I, I don't know. I maybe I shouldn't guess on their ages. They look they look like they could be between you know fifty and sixty years old probably, and and uh, they they have a weekly series. They discuss women's sports and how and when sports media does and doesn't focus on women athletes in competition. I watched through this whole show. The beginning they talk about Jess Diggins' performance and how excited they were, and they also talked about how the broadcasters in on Peacock did not really add to the commentary in terms of like giving them a special insight. Like what are the athletes thinking? And they talked about, we, I want to know more about technique things and I want to know more about nutrition. I want to know more of these like higher level things of the sport. And they were giving us really basic things. That's kind of boring. I wish they would kind of, you know, most of the people watching Nordic skiing know Nordic skiing. So you don't have to tell us really fundamental things. They were commenting on the, the play-by-play commentators had nothing to do with Futterman. <laughs> and so I I thought that was pretty bad journalism on the side of Outside Magazine to cite this YouTube video that was referring to something else completely. 
Now, her line, others found the commentary simply boring. Yes, they found the commentary on the race boring, but in your article, it makes it sound like you're talking about Futterman's commentary. Because she says, could he not come up with a more interesting analysis of the race? So the he pronoun there is definitely Futterman. Well, this show is not talking about Futterman at all. That is really bad, uh, dishonest journalism there. Uh, really bad. On top of that, when you cite something and say, you know, other people did this, I was definitely expecting another, you know, bigger media outlet, a bigger article. This show has 45 views. 45 views. It's been out for a month. And most of those views are likely because it's linked to the outside article. If you look at their other shows that have been posted, seven views, 13 views, six views, five views. I mean, that's lower than the Cedar Skier podcast, people. So I don't know. I felt like <clears throat> that was kind of crazy. That's when I knew, like, okay, I got to read the rest of this article. Like, what are we, where are we going to where are we going to go here? <clears throat> and uh, we went some crazy places. So I'm skipping down here. All right, here we go. First coffee break. Breaking my wife's rule. Hmm. Even coffee becoming expensive, so I got to savor every sip. <clears throat> here we go. When media outlets claim. They are just reporting the facts. When it comes to sports coverage, they ignore the reality that the body is never, never neutral ground. I love it when media outlets use the word neutral. They don't understand. There is not, there is not neutral ground for anything. They like to say that, oh, we're providing you with objective facts. This is unbiased. That's logically impossible. It's philosophically impossible. Everyone in the world, in America, in education, we should have to take a like classical philosophical course so we understand concepts like the myth of neutrality. Anyway, I know that's not what she was going for here, but it made me chuckle because there there is an element of that that she is trying to say that like there is no neutral ground when it comes to the body. <clears throat> anyway, next sentence. This is where we really get crazy. So hold on tight, okay? Speculating whether an athlete is too fat, too thin, or has a body appropriate for their sport betrays some of our worst societal tendencies, like an overwhelming preference for bodies that are lean and white. I I like full stopped right there because I, I had to reread that again. Speculating whether an athlete is too fat, too thin, or has a body appropriate for their sport betrays some of our worst societal tendencies, like an overwhelming preference for bodies that are lean and white. So there's two things that she's kind of claiming here. First, she's kind of claiming that that people, media, are speculating whether an athlete is too fat, too thin, or has a body appropriate for their sport. I, I can't say that I've really seen that uh, speculating. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. It, is she suggesting that there's media people out there that are saying like, well, if only this athlete was five pounds, you know, smaller, you know, or they're watching a running race and, and kind of – you know, you do occasionally hear, hear them say stuff like, you know, this person is is taller than the average distance runner or more muscular than the average distance runner, which is kind of the way of saying this person is bulkier than the average distance runner. But honestly, if someone if someone was watching me run and said, well, Cedarquist is more muscular than the average distance runner, I would not take that as a, are you saying I'm fat or should I, I should lose weight? Like, that is a different statement, you know, than, than someone saying, 
well, Cedarquist could definitely lose 10 pounds here and it would help him in the 10K. You know, that that's different than saying someone's a more muscular runner. There, there have been people who've, you know, sizing up a guy like Ben True and said he's larger than most distance runners, but that's just a true statement. He's like 6'1". 150 pounds. No one who is 6'1", 150 pounds is overweight at all. That's still thin. But when you compare it to, to Ethiopians who are 5'5", and 121 pounds, to say that he's larger is just a true fact. Um, so I don't know how much speculation we've seen. That's the first claim where I'm like, eh, I feel like that's the wrong word there. Speculating? Because you don't really hear them kind of kind of weighing the odds there. They make they make statements, but I don't know if it's really speculation. But the second line is is the is the more crazy claim. What she is claiming here is that we prefer bodies that are lean and white. Um <laughs> I think generally the public, like if you polled 10 people and said, would you rather be lean or obese? Correct. Most people would say, I'd rather be lean personally. Now, America is not doing a good job at that. I looked this up before the show. 40% of Americans are obese. So if we prefer that, we're just, we're not doing a very good job of doing it, you know? And even, even if you looked at pop culture right now, you know, if you walk into a mall and you see advertisements, they are advertising for all different body types now. It's kind of this inclusive movement of, um, there's no, there's no bad body type. Okay. Which, to some degree, isn't really good for health. <clears throat> I would agree that we all we all have different like potentials for how our bodies could be, um, but that doesn't mean that every body type is your best healthiest you. You know what I mean? So, like, you might have a body type that your healthiest you might look different than my healthiest me, but that doesn't just that doesn't give you a free pass to like guzzle coke. Uh, or Dr. Pepper and eat Cheetos all day and then go, this is this is me. This is the healthiest me. You need to accept that as the healthiest me. No, I don't. Like, I, I don't think I don't think we need to celebrate that either. I think I think the body is a temple and I think that you should take care of the body because it's a temple. And that means eating right and being active. And generally speaking, almost all of Americans are do neither one of those things. But now we have in pop, pop culture this acceptance of all all of these body types. And, and I don't mean that in like a healthy way. I mean it in an unhealthy way. So I, I actually think her statement that we prefer bodies that are lean, well, maybe you should tell that to all the advertisers right now because it seems to me like they're actually bucking that trend. They're going, ah, screw that. We're not going to try and, we're not going to try and uh, make everyone fit the perfect mold anymore. That used to be the case. When we were growing up and I was five, six, seven, eight years old, and you know, you, I remember in high school, all the models are unrealistically thin or blah, blah, blah. And that to me, I could see where the negativity was because if you're a girl, you're looking at, it's like, it seems to me like every girl has that shape. It's like, that's not even possible for every girl to do. So that that's different. That's harmful. I think we should celebrate different body body shapes and types and all that. But but it, it again shouldn't be a free pass to be obese. Obesity and different body types are two different things. Now the second thing that that we have a preference for bodies that are white. What if she had said that we have a preference for bodies that are black? Is this is this a statement you could prove? Where is the data here that that we are as a society? prefer white skin. I mean, if you if your evidence for that is, well, look at America, systemic racism. All of society is built on, you know, um propping up the uh, people with white skin. I don't, that's not evidence for the statement that we have an overwhelming preference for 
bodies that are white. That's a different statement. That's a wild claim, I think. And it just kind of is in the middle of this article. And to me, it makes me kind of want to go, all right, I guess I'm done with outside here because it's it's such a wild statement that I guess I, I know where you're, where you're, where you're rooted in and, and it's, how, how can I take you seriously when you say something like that? And that's not me standing up here and denying that racism is still still exists, but that's a that's a crazy claim, I think. And, and I honestly, I just, I, I guess I don't remember like innately thinking that, you know. And if I grew up in uh, the racist America, and I didn't think that, I'm not sure that that could even be an over not what she says an overwhelming preference. If it's an overwhelming preference, then I would have grown up thinking. Oh, good. I'm. I have white skin. That makes me uh, better. This is the prep. This is the preferred skin tone. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, to me, that that's the kind of statement actually that like um, only makes ra- racist thoughts even worse. It just like festers that wound. Okay. So that that's my wild statement. We'll keep going though. By calling out someone's body type and marking it as divergent, regardless of whether it's a good or a bad difference. We're constructing a proverbial right body for activity. Um, that that I think it could be again going back to the coaching statement. I think that's that's sort of true. That we sort of say if you're this body type, you'd be good at this sport or that. And I don't think that's positive. That and I do think I agree with her that we've we have sort of created the proverbial right body for certain activities. Within this environment, athletes chase specific silhouettes as if they're the only determinant of success and future performance, making athletics a ripe setting for eating disorders and body dysphoria. Okay, here's here's a point that I don't think anyone's brought up, and I will just say from my own personal experience, this could be a factor uh, for why athletics is a ripe setting for eating disorders. When you put a bunch of competitive people in an environment, like a college, where they're living together, they're training together, they see each other for maybe two or three meals a day, uh, they're just surrounded by each other all the time. They are watching each other perform. They're they're watching each other write down their weekly mileage. We had some, you know, like that where we had a board where first for the coaches say, "Here's how, here's how far I ran today," and you could see everyone's up there. Um, I know, and then of course you compete together, so you see results. I know there was a part of me when I first got to Concordia and I started running mileage, and and the focus like became how much mileage you were doing partially because that was something that was being recorded. And I'm definitely wired in a way where I was like, I'm writing this down. Now this has value, (laughs) right? That's why people have training journals. Some people are like, with the second you write it down, you start filling out the training journal, that becomes the standard. Same thing with Strava. If it didn't happen on Strava, it didn't really happen. If you didn't have, if you didn't write down your training journal, it didn't really happen. That's why we have this. So Concordia was like, oh gee, like this is the thing we're tracking. So this must be what matters. And I remember kind of like, well, I'm competitive. I want to be on the top here. I have a pride that I don't want to be outworked. Now that was my the essence of my competitive spirit. I will say I wasn't I wasn't always my compet my competitiveness um, wasn't always manifested in me going to the Steve Prefontaine well in a race. Some people are like that. You know, they're so competitive, they can't control their emotions in a game. You see this with people like Nadamik and Sue in football, um, uh, athletes who lose their cool. It's, it's a, if they're so competitive, they care so much about that, they can't handle it in performance. I wasn't really like that, but I was extremely competitive from a work ethic standpoint. 
So if I saw someone was running more mileage than me, to me, I took that person like that person's more dedicated than me, unacceptable, you know? And so that, that person's doing something I'm not doing to ensure that I maximize my potential, unacceptable. That's where my competitive nature was. And I think a lot of type A endurance runners are like that. Their competitive root, it's based in, I don't want to be outworked. And there is a positive to that. Because if we define success as the maximizing of one's potential, that depends upon that person maximizing their potential by doing everything possible to become the best that they can be. That involves diet, that involves training, it involves sleep, rest, all those ingredients. And so when, when a team, a group of people like that are surrounded, surrounded they're, they're together all the time, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the, the competitive person who's like, oh, wow, that person is, is eating a salad and they have less dressing than I do. Oh, my gosh. Like that's, that means I'm eating more fat. This could affect my performance. I'm not doing as much as they are doing to help myself. So it becomes like a competitive one-up thing. Um, and, and it, it trickles into all sorts of things, whether it's mileage and training. And this is why you see people overtrain sometimes to their detriment. And, and I think it bleeds into eating too. And in college, especially because you, again, you are, you are training and competing alongside each other, but then you're going to the dining hall every day, multiple times. So you're seeing what everyone else is eating. Oh, I know that person ran less than I did and they're eating this or that person ran more than I did they're eating less than I how can this be and you don't see the whole picture you just kind of size up you compete and and all of a sudden you have these two people trying to outdo one another um and, and I've seen that happen in my own in my own career and actually it, it happened it, it pushed me to great things too so this is why we surround ourselves with a team you have if you have someone who's so much better than everyone else, they, they start to get complacent. All of a sudden, the transfer walks in who's just as good as you. And they're doing, you know, an extra workout here. Or they're running their long run five miles farther than you were. Well, then you up the game and you meet them. And it, and it sometimes helps you. So they, they got out the door when it was negative three. You were thinking, eh, I bet no one's going to go out for a run. Oh my gosh, that guy did. Okay, I better do it. You know, so there can be a positive impact here, but definitely a negative one too. And so I think that's something where, you know, people are sort of ignoring the danger that a, just a team can bring to the table. And that's something I think where coaches could play an active role in solving this issue by addressing it up front and going, look, we know that this is what you're going to be faced with. You're going to see this. You're going to feel this. You need to know that there can be a positive and a negative to this impact of team and culture. And if you are feeling pressured towards some of these negative things, come talk to me. Like, come talk to us. Talk to the assistant coach. I'll bring it up. We want to address that. We don't want to let you feel like you need to be doing that to be good. And they can reinforce those things. That would be a positive, positive way to get through this. Okay, the rest of this article, um, let's see. There, here's another line. I'm just kind of skipping down. 
But who decides what's the norm? Who gets to decide what an athlete's body should look like? Spectators and self-appointed social media experts will always have their opinions, but conversations about weight, body composition, and diet should be left to an athlete and qualified professionals. What if a qualified professional is on social media? Like, see, this is kind of a dumb statement, too. Spectators and self-appointed social media experts. Obviously, she's probably talking about these keyboard warriors who are who don't know what they're talking about. But you know what? There's a lot of keyboard warriors who do know what they're talking about. There's a lot of keyboard warriors who ran, you know, 29 minutes in the 10k and all they all they care about is writing online forums about other runners because they just love the sport that much so don't dismiss those people because all you did is go they don't get to have the right to say it but the athlete and the qualified professionals do why says who again what if those self-appointed social media experts actually are experts why don't we just let information be what it is let let these people on social media talk you be the filterer Okay, like I hate it when we kind of shut down, you know, ideas because we think that it's all misinformation if it doesn't come from a certain source. There are very dumb people who can say very true things. There's the line you can say for maybe that should be the title of this podcast. Um, There are very dumb people who can say very true things. Okay, you don't have to have titles. And, And likewise, there are very qualified, quote, qualified people who say untrue things. So I would rather just have all that information sit out there and and by you know the process of competition basically the true statements rise to the top so to speak. So yeah, I disagree with that. Now I do think <clears throat> that ultimately well, and she's saying what's the normal what what should well, what should a personal athlete's body look like? She is correct in saying ultimately that's got to be up to the athlete and the supporting staff around that person. I wish she would have said that because maybe that's a qualified professional and maybe it's not necessarily a qualified professional, but it's someone who's telling that athlete true things. So for example, I might not be qualified, a qualified professional, but let's say my daughter or my son is an endurance athlete. I can absolutely provide support to them as they search for peak performance and all that is entailed there. Uh, and that that's part of the important stuff. You want you want the athlete to be finding and searching and testing information in a healthy way. All right, I don't want to hijack the podcast here too much with this article, but we'll just finish with our last paragraph. Par- paragraph. Here's what it says. Last line. We need to commit to the idea that anybody has the potential to achieve full stop. I 100% agree with that statement. So don't come at me here and say, wow, Ryan, you're just ripping everyone all the time. I think there's a lot of truth in this article. Obviously, there were some wild statements, but that's kind of why, why I wanted to bring it up is sort of have some fun taking a look at it. All right. Uh, just for a little bit more lighthearted notes here, this came across. thought I'd share this with the Cedar Skier fans. This is the strangest essay and academic topics in every state. Um, this is taken from Eduberti. So academic papers can be quite different. Uh, professional editing and academic tutoring service Eduberti has been has seen thousands of essays and academic papers within the years. Sometimes the topics and texts our editors have to work with are so unexpected that they can't help but smile. The stories of these wonderful pieces of writing were filling our offices, so we decide to find out what are the most unusual, unexpected, weird, and bizarre topics students ever had to write papers on. We analyzed over 400,000 academic papers submitted to us for editing within the last four years and picked out the most outstanding topics from every state. If you think you see a mistake in a topic, you're wrong. Every single one of them is intended to be as it's written, and yes, all of them are real essays. 
or other academic or high school papers in some way. Here's what we saw. The weirdest essay topic in every state. So I'm going to look at some of the states I've lived in, uh, some other ones. Here we go. Uh, Minnesota, essay topic, trick or truck. North Dakota, economy is an illusion. Hmm, that's interesting. Economy is an illusion. And North Dakota has like a good bustling economy, actually. South Dakota, Luke is my father. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So there's kind of the, there's the Midwest stuff. Um, <clears throat> red wine is actually blue. That was Iowa's weirdest topic. Maine, my life began. What do I do next? I think that's kind of funny, actually. Um, oh, ooh, this is this is a good one. Is this Massachusetts? Instagram is my life. Hmm. Huh. Instagram is my life. I can't see whether one of these states is a little bit small here. This might this might be Delaware. The internet is not relevant anymore. There you go. Let's argue for it. Uh, badminton is a real sport. I mean it. That is, it looks like, let's see, this is Maine. Oh, no, that's Massachusetts. Badminton is a real sport. I mean it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Now, Instagram, my life, is the state just south of Massachusetts, which is, where's my geography? Help me out. What is this? That's not Rhode Island there. Rhode Island is Q means important. Well, anyway, let's go on. What, what do you think Colorado's is? Here we go. Colorado. Why Google should be forbidden. <laughs> there you go. That's the weirdest topic in all of Colorado. Hmm. Um, Shrek in Narnia. Collision of worlds. That's California's weirdest one. Interesting. I see only sand around me. That's Alaska's. Hawaii Arctic's is just a huge ice cream. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Good one. Good one. All right. <clears throat> so just thought I'd break up the Cedar Skier podcast there. A little bit of fun, lighthearted stuff. <clears throat> I have a big article that needs to be addressed. And this is back to skiing, back to Norway. Um, February 23rd, 2022. This article... And the Aspen Institute, how Norway won all that Olympic gold again. It's written by Inge Andersen, Oyvind Sandbach, and Johan Olaf Koss. So it came across my viewing point, obviously, because of Oyvind. I think it was on Facebook that I saw this shared. So um, let's dive into this and analyze just a little bit. There's going to be some interesting statistics, so you want to hang on. This is this is maybe the focal point of this podcast. So Ajay, let's put it in the title. Here we go. How Norway won all that Olympic gold again. We'll read through this and comment. Editor's note, Norway has the population of Minnesota, but that didn't stop the tiny Scandinavian country from topping the medal standings at the recently completed Beijing Olympics, just as it did in 2018 at the Pyeongchang Games. Indeed, this time its athletes won a record 16 gold medals across six disciplines. The performance burnished Norway's reputation as having the best sports system in the world, both in elite performance and making a meaningful contribution to communities and its democracy. Followers of the Aspen Institute's Project Play Initiative are familiar with a key feature of the Norwegian sport model, its children's rights in sports statement that guides the activities of sport bodies in the country, including its Olympic Committee. Aspen drew upon the document's principles in developing the Children's Bill of Rights in Sports, launched last year with the endorsement of more than 60 national organizations, including the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. 
There are other pieces to the Norwegian sport model that also help explain its success. At the conclusion of the Beijing Olympics, we invited three architects of Norway's sports system to share their insights. The below piece is authored by Inge Andersen, former Secretary General of the Norwegian Olympic and Paralympic Committee and Confederation of Sport, Oyvind Sandbach, the Director of the Center for Elite Sports Research at NTNU, and Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, oh, that's Oyvind, sorry, he does everything, and Johan Olaf Koss, four-time Olympic champion in speed skating and the founder of Right to Play and Fair Sport. <clears throat> All right. I didn't realize that we came up with a Bill of Rights. It'd be interesting to look at, actually. Children's rights in sports. <clears throat> 93. So, okay, sorry. I skipped ahead. Yeah, <laughs> my bad. Here's the start of the article. The world knows our country of 5.3 million inhabitants up by the North Pole is the superpower of winter sports. We also now have some of the best summer sport athletes in soccer, track and field, triathlon, and even beach volleyball. So we get asked, what's the secret to Norway's success? The first thing to know, we weren't always strong, even in winter sports. In the late 1980s and early 90s, our results were poor. The entire model in Norway had to be reinvented. <clears throat> we started with the 1994 Winter Olympics that was hosted in Lillehammer and have continued to improve our approach to sports development since then. We recognize that the training that achieved gold medals in Lillehammer or Vancouver would not be enough to win gold medals in 2022. We have continually refined our approach to training athletes in sport development. Here are the seven most important elements. <clears throat> First of all, I, I, I take issue with the fact that they say we weren't always strong. And in the late 80s and 90s, the results were poor. <clears throat> if you go to cross-country skiing and look at the Olympics, okay, and the historical Olympics, which I did, in the summary, okay, here, here we go. Cross-country skiing at the Winter Olympics. No, I, again, we're just looking at cross-country skiing, but still. It has the best countries here. Um, 1924 was Norway. 1928 was Norway. I get it. That's a long time ago, right? And you, you kind of see Finland, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Sweden. They're kind of all in there. But even 1968, Norway had the most medals. So they were the best. Now, you look at the 70s, 72, 76, and, and 80, those three Olympics, the Soviet Union <clears throat> dominated. 1992, Norway was the best. And, of course, then they kind of say, by 1994, we were, we were winning. But to say that in the 70s and 80s, they were not, you know, competitive seems off. Uh, let's take a look at the 1972 Olympics, okay? Um, 1972 Olympic. oh, man, oh, I think I... I did not want to do that there. Oops, I clicked the wrong thing here. Just a minute. Winter skiing at the Olympics. Norway had, had so the Soviet Union had eight total medals and Norway had seven. I would not call that a failure. In fact, in the 50K, they went one, two in the 50K. Norway did. Uh, <laughs> like in the 30K, they were second and third. And the four by 10K, they were second. By like six seconds. Um, so I wouldn't call that a failure. 1972, definitely not a failure. Okay, very relevant. Second by one medal. 1976, Soviet Union had 10 medals. Finland was second with five. Norway only had two. That's a little bit more of a shock there. The Soviets were at, at their you know peak dominance. But Norway still was second in the men's four by 10 kilometer relay. So I would say that that, that would indicate that they're still relatively strong. Women's events, they didn't have any medalists, which is kind of a shock. Um, going on 1980. 
Soviet Union, again, had the most, seven medals. Norway had three medals, but no golds. Again, if you like, compare this to, like, poor, you know, like, we're t- like the Americans would be like, oh, man, disaster, right? Uh, Norway had a bronze medalist in the 15K. You know, Wasberg and Mieto won that, but Ovi only was bronze. 30K, no medalist. 50K, no medalist. 4 by 10 k again, second place. The 4 by 10 k is kind of the event, wouldn't you say, that, that indicates the overall depth and strength of your team? And we're talking here, too. Like, remember... If there was ever a time that we that we would think that they were doping, it's the it's the seventies and eighties, East Germans and Russia, Soviet Union. So, you know, to get second in that and and a wide margin over Finland too. Um, on the women's side, the women's relay team was third that year. Okay, so again, I wouldn't call that disastrous by any means. If we go to nineteen eighty four, only four medals. Finland had the most that year with eight. Um. Now, this is kind of crazy, though. No individual medals in the 15, 30, or 50K on the men's side. The women's side, Berit Only won a silver medal in the 5K. Britt Pedersen, 10K bronze. 20K, on Yaren was bronze. And then Norway's girls, they won the 4x5K relay. <clears throat> All right. So that kind of takes us through that period where he says they, the results were poor feel like that's a little bit relative. Now, when you compare it to the last five Olympics, yeah, sure. it It's definitely an improvement. But I, I when I read that, I was like, really poor? I don't know. Like, that's, that's crazy. I feel like when I think of winter sports, I've sort of always thought of Norway. And I don't think that's a false statement. Okay, so here's the seven most important elements. Number one, children's rights in sports. 93% of all Norwegian children and youths participate in organized sports during their childhood. Participation in sporting activities for children up to 12 years of age follows the children's rights in sports statement, which underscores the intrinsic value of playing sports and encourages experiences and skills that in turn provide the basis for lifelong enjoyment of sports. The resource has been updated several times, most recently in 2019. These rights and provisions are unique in a global context and are designed to help children have a positive experience every time they participate in training, competition, or other activities. Children should feel safe, experience mastery, and be allowed to influence their own activity. In fact, we are sure this is also the best background for those who later decide to take out their full potential as elite athletes. I see nothing negative to that. that that's an incredible positive here. And, and maybe the most crazy thing is 93% are participating in organized sports during their childhood. The... The, the, the theme that is running through this entire article in my mind when I try to synthesize what Norway is doing and compare it to what we do in America is the idea that Nor- Norway's youth experience is um, different and maybe not worse or better than ours when you think of interscholastic activity. In America... We have junior high teams and high school, like school, public school teams. That's sort of the foundation of our participation network. Um, now, even as recently as when I was in high school, a decade ago, or, well, hold on, a decade and change, we, like like your high school performances, that, that's what mattered the most. You know, high school, the high school basketball team, the high school football team, skiing, 
running, what you're doing there. Now we are getting a little more where like club performance and especially in skiing, it's absolutely this way, especially in Colorado. Uh, I think you heard me rant about this last show, but that is almost prioritized above what is happening interscholastically in Norway. You just don't have any of those high school sporting, you know, nothing is that it's all club based. And the positive side of that is they can continue. They can control this participation and the pipeline from like age three all the way through professional. It all stays this constant stream. You can be a part of Lynch Ski for 35, 40 years if you want, even through master's athletes. I like that. I, I absolutely like that. Um, I, I think what they miss out on is the uniqueness of having the same kids that you go to English class with, you also practice with, you compete with, you shed tears with, and you close the chapter your senior year with. I think there is a powerful thing there that is missed in Norway's system. But I don't necessarily say that it's better or worse. And I think right now we're seeing in America this deconstruction of youth sports partially because um, high school sports is being attacked by club, by AAU. It's being attacked on all sides and good kids are being pulled out of scholastic activity and they're, oh, I'm just going to focus on my club here. Or I, or I just want to, if you're a really elite basketball player, it's like AAU college pro, you know, and they, they just don't, <laughs> high school is just kind of almost a joke. And, and I feel, I feel like what that eliminates in America is the opportunity for all youth to participate in a highly well-coached environment because think about it if you start pulling out all the good kids from high school sports you're pulling out parents you're pulling out coaches you're you're just picking at that system and and if you're left with this joke environment and that's the that's the one that anyone can freely join now the quality of that is deteriorated all those good kids went to you know, exclusive clubs that required either a high cost or a specific entry, you know, capability, athletic ability. And so I think that's what we have here is like America is almost trying to do it the old America way and sort of the Norwegian way at the same time. And they're, they're, they're failing at both because they're not really doing what Norway does where we have a club, we want everyone to be in it, and we're going to shepherd them through however long they want to be a part of this. We don't have that in America. There's no AAU basketball team that's like, I'll come, I'll come and be what? There's no four-year-old the hockey club in Minnesota, the best, most elite there, that are just letting any old person join. So we, we make those things exclusive, and we've now ruined the quality of the one that's accessible to all. You see what I mean? So it's it's totally just tearing apart both of those things. And so on the one hand, we've got, oh, yeah, those Nor- Norwegian kids, they don't get the cool experience of high school. Yeah, they don't, but they have this healthy view of sports the whole way through. And I think it's interesting how when you think of the history of Norwegian, especially skiing, uh, I think I'm pronouncing that completely wrong, <laughs> but the idea that um, sort of well-being and getting outside, being active, all of these like qualities of what the sport means um, at the heart of their culture, families going on on Sundays for skis, because that's just what you do here. Um, We want you to be happy and reinvigorated by the outdoors and enjoying the sport. They've sort of kept that alive now in the modern 2022 era. 
you know, I think that's that's really where even these these guys know their history. They know what they're baked out of. Okay, so that's one thing. But the other current here that is not discussed and why this works in Norway is the homogenous population. You have like-minded, Nor- Norway is small, like they said, it's the size of Minnesota. You have a lot of people who um, come from the same ethnic background, the same religious beliefs or uh, moral beliefs, I guess, in Norway, and just the same ideas about life and what they value. And so they can pour all their resources, energy, time, and money into common um, pursuits. And that's the main advantage. You're getting everyone on the same page. This is also, by the way, why you could you could do the same exercise and ironically take the state they reference where the size of Minnesota. Okay, let's look at Minnesota. Minnesota is one state in the union. We have the best hockey players from our state decade after decade. Um, is there any reason why, you know, a state like New York couldn't do that? They have more people, uh, more money, theoretically. They have a bigger talent pool. Why, why, aren't you, why don't they produce scores of elite hockey players? It's not like it's on the beach. New York has winter sports, right? Uh, so I, I think it's the difference is in Minnesota, and, and Minnesota's changing quite a bit now. Um, in terms of like ethnic makeup, uh, they're they're becoming much more uh, what's the word wide variety, you know. But it, they are Scandinavian, you know, heritage. It's still rich and deep. Norwegian, Finnish, Swedish immigrants to Minnesota, bringing that Canadians coming down from the border, you know. And so like hockey has it's still a hotbed for that for a lot of that reason. But you see in like inner city Minneapolis. And the um, the suburbs of Minneapolis where AAU basketball, that's taken off. Minnesota now is like one of the top high school basketball states in the country too. Uh, but it's not happening up in War Road. The best basketball recruits are not up there, right? That's where hockey still lives. A, tiny, a town with 200 people has, uh, there, there have been years where War Road has produced, you know, 15% of the Olympic hockey team. So, and the, the town is 200, 300 people or something like that. Now I'm just spouting false claims. War Road is tiny. It's tiny. So I think that those are the two themes. Keep that in mind because that's the initial thing. I go, okay, what's – I feel like what, what Norway does here in this article is they go, yeah, you know, it's pretty amazing. Look at all the gold medals we won. Let me let us tell you about how we do things. You know, they're kind of like condescending down like this is how, you know, sport development should be. There's that on the one hand. But there's also this side of me that goes, yeah, Norway does do everything right. They do. But the reason they do is because – they they can all agree on how they should it's it's a unified approach and that that goes beyond just you guys are special it's like that's what's going to happen when you are a country that's not a melting pot like america is and so as americans we kind of on the one hand you know people are like we should be doing this more like norway we should be doing it that look at how they do it how could we can't get our act together yeah yeah but we are a huge nation we are a huge nation. We're a melting pot, and that's what makes America America. And part of that's what make it, makes America great. So this is why America is relevant and competitive in almost every sport, too. You know, where's Norway's professional basketball players? Oh, what's wrong with your sports system there? You guys can't get it together? Can't put together a team? <laughs> there are Division three basketball teams in America that could probably beat whatever Norwegian's national basketball team is, you know? And so 
it's just, I, I think it's good. Yeah, your country's small. You all care about winter sports, and that's why you're good at it. You also have a great system in place, and you absolutely have the right ideal and foundation um, for a philosophy of sport. No questions there. We could certainly learn from that. And so I'll read the rest of this article um, and kind of let you, you know, soak in some of those other concepts they have. Here's the second one. The establishment and development of Olympia Toppin. Similar in some ways to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, Olympia Toppin, based in Oslo, is much more than a sports center to develop athletes. Staff members at Olympia Toppin work closely with the university and college environments and facilitate learning within and across environments in active sports in Norway. The national investment in Olympia Toppin has been crucial for the development of a competency-based top sport program in Norway. The establishment of Olympia Toppen centers in eight locations in Norway has been key to the development and sustainability of success at the highest levels. At the same time, we recognize that Olympia Toppen sits on the shoulders of a sports movement dominated by volunteer coaches and administrators across the country. The cooperation between community clubs and leaders driving elite sports is the jewel of the Norwegian performance culture. I'm not really sure if we see if like we already kind of, we do have that, you know, and take Nordic skiing specifically. Uh, you talked to Matt Wickham and Chris Grover, and they've said this before too. We are basically resting on the shoulders of some of these great volunteer coaches, some of these great clubs that we have. Um, they they know that those are very important, and so they support them. They work with them. I think we're doing a really good job in terms of emulating Norway in this area, especially in Nordic skiing. There's probably other sports where it's not the same case, but I think um, I think we've improved in this area of of um, working with clubs recognizing the role that they play, allowing them to develop these athletes at a young age, um, while still um, trying to bring a unified approach. Shared training philosophy. That's number three. To be the best in the world, you must train the best in the world. At the same time, the training philosophy in Norwegian sports involves taking responsibility for both the social, mental, and physical development into being a top athlete. It's about developing people. That's, that's huge. As Norway's top Olympic official, Tor Ovebro, said recently to the Canadian newspaper The Globe and Mail, in Norway, it's like we're developing citizens and not only athletes. There is therefore no tradition of cultivating child and youth stars. It's, it is important for later development that children get to participate in sports, try many different sports, and let inner joy govern the sports choices made during adolescence. Um, okay, I agree with the social, mental, and physical development, developing people. That is that is the unsung, you know, trait that that is so critical. Because if you develop the whole person, you develop a love for sport, you develop a proper philosophy of sport in that individual, they will take it farther than someone who doesn't have that. So, great. I wonder, though, in Norway... Then when you do have some people, the, Helen Marie Fossesholm, Therese Johag was on the World Cup at a very young age, Klabo, um, what is, I mean, yeah, no, they're not 15, uh, but they're still pretty young when they're making it onto the World Cup. I mean, I don't know. Are, are they are they being that diligent and holding them back? Maybe it's just one of those cases where, yeah, those guys were so good. Like, what can we do? Like, they're going to win a World Cup at 20. Um but to say they don't have a tradition of cultivating child new stars, I don't know. What about Jakob Bingebretsen? He's the youngest person ever to run under four minutes in the mile. <laughs> uh, but but I think I, I think generally I'm not going to like challenge that. I think that is their philosophy and for sure that it's developing people first. Do we do that in America? 
I think on our U.S. ski team, we definitely do. This is one of the things I praise Matt Wickham about the most is what him and Grover have going on is the class of the U.S. ski team is phenomenal. Those are some some great people, you know, and I love it when he talks about, you know, when the U.S. ski team leaves a hotel, we leave it better than um, it was when we got there. And they they do all the little things and things that are unseen, things that are seen. Um, they're a class act. So I think there's some element where, where our ski team is developing people, um, most certainly. I do think that this is where I would insert the importance of the NCAA system. Because NCAA sports is so special. And in skiing specifically, we're missing this element. We're missing it. We we don't have, and, and that's a huge, what I mean special, it's important for you know developing the whole person. When you're in the NCAA sport, you are learning all sorts of things, balancing academics and training, learning how to strive for uh, goals with teammates who are better than you or worse than you. Um, you, you, there's so many things, college, I know my college experience made life seem easier. (laughs) I was balancing band training academics, you know, my fiance, even at at the latter half of my collegiate career. And when I got into my first job, I remember thinking like, oh, this feels easier than my last four years have been in terms of just what I'm trying to juggle. Um, and, and so I think when you become an athlete who joins the U.S. ski team, team at 19 or whatever, and I know some of these athletes are, are taking classes on the side and all that, that is not the same thing as being at a school. That is not the same thing as living on campus with a roommate that you didn't choose, um, being with a, a program, traveling to all these podunk meets, traveling to big meets. You get all that. When you're in the NCAA system, running the 5K at Jamestown in front of nobody as the North Dakota winds blast in your face, that builds character. That builds something. It builds humility, for one thing. And when you're kind of shepherded in from your U.S. junior national podium that you got when you were 16 years old, and you've never, from that point, you've you've been toted by sponsors, and you get free stuff, and you're going to be at this training camp and that training camp. You're, you're just continually bolstered that, the, the fact that you are more special than these other people. Um, and I think that is harmful. I think in Norway, the fact that they have such a deep competitive uh, field even the best athletes realize that on a given day, they could lose to the people, their, their own countrymen, you know? Yeah, Klabo, is he going to lose to other Norwegians? Not, not likely. But those would be the people who probably would beat him if there ever was one, you know? And so they're, they're constantly humbled by the fact that, yeah, I was 10th at the World Cup, but then I went to Norwegian Nationals and I was 12th, you know, I didn't, didn't race as well. Um, and so the NCAA system is important. And I had this huge document I want to bring up this is wild. I, I should link this show notes. This is the sports sponsorship participation rates report from the NCAA. I was just curious, like how many skiers do we have competing in the NCAA system? Uh, because Devin Kirsch on the Faster Skier Show, he kind of he kind of downplayed this by, I think, saying it was a shame that some of these athletes were competing in NCAAs and not in the World Cup. And I was like, I think it's the exact opposite. I give these guys tons of cred because the, the stronger and bigger the NCAA system is, the better our skiing will be. Um, at the top. The reason I say that is the NCAA system is basically our club system that Norway has. So you have to look at it that way too. The The health of our high school league ski teams is this, is akin to the health of the Lynn skis, the Trondheim ski clubs, those ski clubs in Lillehammer. 
you want to have more of those programs. You want more to be healthy. You want more kids participating. We need to get to that 93%. And the NCA system is just the extension of that. So so here's what we have some numbers though, okay? NCA women's skiing, I'm looking at it in 1981, 1982, okay? And this breaks it down by divisions of schools. It also has overall. I'll just skip over to the overall um, number of teams, uh, total athletes, okay? An average squad side too. So it, it, when this started, 81, 82, and this is just women, there were 33 NCAA ski teams. 14 of those were from D3 schools. Four were from Division II schools. 15 were from Division I schools, okay? 33 teams, 359 athletes, okay? The next year, 35 teams, 529 athletes. We increased two teams, but way more participation, all right, let's skip down to 1984-85, year four. We're up to 37 teams, 624 athletes, 16.9 athletes per squad. That's the peak in this like 35-year period that we're looking at for almost 40-year period because it goes up to 2019. That's the peak average size was 1984-85, okay? But it's not the peak number of teams. We scrolled down a little bit. We hit that in 1995, Okay, 1995-96 season, we had 53 NCAA teams, 631 athletes. Notice the total athletes actually isn't that high, the, the, the average per team, 11.9. That's that's not great. But the fact that you've got at least 53 schools that offer skiing, which by the way, 53 schools would make up 5.3% of the colleges in the country. So in other words... You know, 5.3% of colleges in the country had a ski program, okay? That's at the peak, 95, 96. Where are we today? Well, I guess I can't go to today, but I can go to 2018, 2019. We're back down to 35 teams, 3.1% of members. NCA schools have ski, 35 teams. How many athletes? 388. 388 NCA athletes. That's... 29 more athletes than we had in 1981, 1982. That is not good. That's on the women's side. Um, just for comparison to another sport, and, and actually looking at women's is is helpful in the sense that you know, you know, with Title IX and everything, if there's anyone that should have been growing from the 80s, it would have been the women's side. And here we see that it's actually gone down. Let's take a look at track and field, okay? And I know you, you, if you're listening to this longtime listener of this podcast, you know that, yeah, Grip Wax Nation, we always are comparing this to running. But part of that's because I, I can speak the most from that as personal experience. And um, and it's accessible. And, and America's good at track and field. So maybe we should be trying to do that. It, it would honestly be my dream to, to have skiing be track and field. In other words, making it to nationals in skiing should be an insane accomplishment. Now, right now, it is a pretty big deal to make it because only 40 athletes are towing the line at NCAAs. So that, that's an exclusive group. But it's 40 athletes out of only 388 to start with. Okay? Now, in the NCAA track and field mile, you have 14 athletes or 16, 14 or 16 athletes squaring off for the mile title out of 27,000 total athletes. Now, I think skiing should not be a field of 14. It'd be really sweet if the mass start 
at the NCAAs for skiing was 110 athletes. I think that would be awesome. You know, somewhere in that 70 to 120 athletes where it's, uh, you know, it feels like a big world cup, honestly, but it should be 70 of 110 uh, athletes out of 10,000, <laughs> you know, like look at the Minnesota state high school league ski meet. That's a big race. I think it's got 160 athletes in it, which is, that seems pretty large, you know, but it's so hard to get to that, that statement, you know, two section teams qualifying. I mean, I just, I wish it would do so much for the humility of athletes. It would do so much for the depth of our program to have just a bigger pool. I mean, it's an, it's embarrassing that it's 388 athletes. There's probably individual clubs in Norway that have that many athletes at the, in the age 20 to 23 range, you know, uh, that's crazy. Okay. So looking at track and field though, here's the, here's the nuts part that I want to compare is the growth so 81, 82, remember in skiing, we had, what was it, 35 teams or something like that. We made up, uh, at the peak, it was 53 teams, okay? At peak athlete, it was about 600, 5% of colleges offered skiing. Right off the bat in 81, 82, 81% of schools offer track and field for women. There were 610 teams, 6,599 athletes. Average squad size was 10 athletes. So that's actually about the same as skiing. Each team at about 10. And that number doesn't change a whole lot. It actually goes down a little bit to nine until... Oh, wait, hold on a minute. Sorry. Look at the wrong sport, people. That was tennis. Tennis, not track and field. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Track and field, 81-82. My bad. Oh, that's kind of crazy. Tennis had 81% of schools offered a tennis team. Uh, in 81, 82, only 31% of colleges offered track to women, less than tennis. Interesting. Went to, I would not have been able to guess that. So 239 NCAA track teams out of 752 NCAA schools, 31%. We have 5,000 athletes. A team is typically 21 strong. Okay. Let's go to 95, 96. Remember, that's the peak of skiing. They grew. They had 53 teams, 5%. At this point in track, we have 53% of schools now. We've grown 20%, over half off our track and field, 12,554 athletes. Okay, let's go to present. Presently, in indoor track for women, 74% of schools offer it, 826 teams in the NCAA system, 20, and that's out of 1,112 schools. So we, we also have gained schools, if you haven't not keeping track. 27,981 athletes, average squad side of squad size of 33.9 athletes. That's an incredible growth. I mean, you're, you're going from even the average squad to go from 21 to 33. We ballooned from 5,000 total athletes in the NCAA system to 27,900. Okay, so you're seeing a growth here in a, in a sport. Why is this? You know, track is accessible. That's one thing. It doesn't cost a lot. So it's a great way for schools to recruit people. Oh, yeah, you can come do track. I know that's the case with D3. And if we really dive on these numbers, I bet we would find that, that D3 schools are are helping to lead the way um, in terms of growth. I'm kind of just looking at it right now. And I can see that Division One schools has definitely added, you know, total number of athletes. Um, and D3 has as well. But but Division Three has doubled their participation rate. So it's a great way to bring in um, decent high school athletes to a college and they can still continue their sport. But this is what we should want. 
Kids should be going to college and not giving up what they did in high school. I cannot stand it when I hear high school seniors go, I'm going to go to college and, and I, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Don't think I'm going to do a sport. Don't think I'm going to be involved. I just got to focus on my classes. You know what that's code for? That's code for I'm burned out from sports in high school and I kind of want to just have a ton of free time to go explore things socially. You know, and that is what happens. A lot of these kids go to school and they fall off the rails because they don't have these things that anchored them philosophically, socially, mentally, and physically. Sports are excellent for that. They are. And that's why they're so important. And it's a huge reason why we're falling behind is our NCAA system must be broken, at least in some of the sports and especially skiing. We, we should we need to figure out a way to make it so these states that have great high school ski programs like Minnesota, like Wisconsin, like Michigan, like Maine, we in uh, Colorado needs to step it up in the high school league. You know, we have great people there, but it, it needs to be bigger and better. We we need to figure out a way to have those athletes, like 90% of them, continue into college. You know, it can't be so expensive, it can't be so accessible. And honestly, if we have that, if it's that small of skiing, we should just combine USCSA and NCAA. I know people are like, oh, it's totally different. Wait, ability to, yeah, that's fine. But but you know, we're not big enough yet to differentiate this. And and you should just put the Wyomings, put the Westerns, put them all together with DUCU because you know what? Then if someone from Western or University of Vermont's like you know, USCA USCSA team, if someone like that makes it to nationals, it is a big deal. You know, like and if someone wins a conference, it is a big deal. When they when they win a national title now, it's like Okay, so you won a national title in a sport that's already tiny in the NCAA system, and you're not even in the NCAA system. You know, the flip side of this is you. What we could have is if they're going to stay separate. I hope the USCSA grows so big that it has ninety percent of the athletes. Now, maybe it's not the top top uh, cream of the crop athletes. That's okay. That, then it's like football. In football, the people going to the NFL are in D one. Almost no one from D three is going to the NFL, but D three is very competitive. And it's its own competitiveness because it has so many athletes. We need one of those two things to happen, you know. Um, so <laughs> there's my there's my spiel there. Uh, and I know I kind of cut off the article, but we, we can keep going here too. There's only a couple more points. So we'll finish this article, finish the show. Long, long podcast today. Hopefully you've held on the whole way and we can get up for a ski here pretty quick too. Number four. So number four is the national team model. Um, this is the best athletes train with the national team. We do this too, but um, being a member of a team is important. Um, the national teams reflect the Norwegian sports model, which assumes that the strength of the community exceeds what individuals can achieve alone. We often see that our best Norwegian alpine skiers give each other a lot of positive feedback when they have reached the finish line after a competition. Um, they are known to grab a radio and send messages with advice to teammates who are also fierce competitors when they stand on top of the slope about to race down. Okay, cool. They support them. Yeah, that's great. We have that too, I think, you know, where athletes are, are really excited cheering for one another. I mean, my only side note there is <laughs> it is kind of a an exclusive club. I think when we see the great camaraderie on our U.S. ski team, I always go, yeah, but who wasn't invited to that? Who's not in that clique? Uh, you know, the Jess Diggins, Julia Kern clique and, and the Haley Swirl. Like, they're just not in that clique. So, yeah, we see great camaraderie between them. But that's, you could you could also walk down a high school hall, pick up the five popular girls and go, oh, all those girls really get along. That's so great. That's so great. And you don't realize that, well, what about this group of people that wasn't invited to that club? I don't know. <laughs> so, and I bet they have that problem in Norway too. I bet there's some catfighting going on about who makes it to what team. 
So, yeah, it's all pretty when everyone wins, but just wait till they kind of lose and start complaining. We saw some of that with Emil Everson, I think, right in the relays at the Olympics. So it's not all perfect in uh, Nordmaka. Together, number five, together on the big achievements. Norwegian sports facilitate learning across sports. We have joint research and development projects and arenas where athletes and coaches meet across disciplines. This form of competence sharing has systematically been valuable. Few countries, if any, match Norway in this area. Our athletes are the beneficiaries from our approach to research, training, and team building. Bjorn Dali, Norway's cross-country legend, was heard many times saying, in effect, Olympic champion is something I've been and is something I can become. It is not something I am. I don't understand actually that lies quote how that fits in, but number five to being together on this uh, research-wise, this is a huge advantage. How could America change this way? Well, one, we should have we should have high level sports physiologists that are tasked with studying Nordic skiing. We, we like literally don't have that. Norway has, you know, 10, 12 PhD students a year coming from just Uyven's, you know, uh, NTNU. You know, what do you think those people end up? They, they continue researching under them and for Olympia Toppen. But again, this shared mindset, we do have this in the NFL, in the NBA. We have like the, the biggest sports leagues for us have the same level of um, research, but we don't have it in skiing because it doesn't matter as much to this country as a whole. So again, the homogenous population of Norway is really helpful here. Yeah, dump a ton of money. So we have 12 PhD students just studied double pole technique. Perfect. Sounds great. Do you think you could really get behind right here with the limited funds we have, even US ski and snowboard? I, I'll, I'll answer that for you. We can't. They wouldn't even take me on as a volunteer in working with that research development program to just like come along. And like the the head person I'm talking to, brilliant guy, but not a sports researcher. He doesn't even have, he doesn't even have his, you know, a master's in physiology at all, you know, and he's got degrees and other things that allow him to analyze statistics well, but he's not a sports physiologist. And he's not, he's definitely not the next level up where in Norway, this, the, the category that I'm talking about with Oyvin, where they're PhDs in sports physiology that have just focused on Nordic skiing research. We're so far behind when it comes to that. You know, I, I'm not sure really what the, what you can say much other than it'd be great if we can get some Nordic skiers who went to college and wanted to study and research their sport. But you know how you get that? You have to widen the number of people who compete in skiing. <laughs> and that's why it comes back to that. If you've stuck around this round, this might be the most poignant point I make all show. Why do you think we have great research on like the running side here in America? It's because we have thousands of athletes who are crazy about distance running and track and field who never make it to the pros, who never, but they want to be involved. So they turn to writing, they turn to research, they turn to coaching. We have so we have such a huge population base in that sport that we have scores of athletes who go through Division three programs, D2, D1, and they decide they're going to go into exercise phys, they're going to do research on running, they choose a topic, and they might take that the next step further. Guys, we have that all over. Even Adam, Adam State is huge. All the people in my ex-phys program, they were all amazing runners for that storied program, and they, they, they paired that by using their academics to study that. You don't have any, name one Nordic skier who is going to school to study Nordic skiing. None. And in fact, here's another problem. Not only are they, they're never studying anything like, they're always studying things like, that are either going to be like wildly green, you know, like I'm studying how to, some environmental impact, or they're studying something that's going to make them a lot of money. 
Like, and, and it's going to be their post ski career. So if we had more people in college skiing, you would have more people choosing to research about skiing. And then we would catch up this way. You can't just go, you can't just throw money at us ski and snowboard and expect people to come out of the woodwork. There, there aren't people who are collegiate age who are studying it. And in Norway, there are. Those people who are, are authoring those papers, take a Google search of them. A lot of them are very good distance skiers. Now, very good is relevant, relative. You know, like if they came to the Berkey, they'd be in the top 10 in the classic race. But no, they're not, they're not even, some of them, not able to make Visma teams. Some of them are. I mean, NTNU has their own Visma ski classics team. So I, th- these are good athletes. They would, they would come to the Leadville Lapid and beat me. I, I can say that. <laughs> oh man, you know we're getting far. That's a good point. I I didn't think of that until I clicked click record here on the podcast. Number six, systematic education of trainers. Solid abroad sports education program has been built up for coaches and managers. Our university and college system has played a major role starting in the 2000s. Most of the coaches behind the development of modern elite sports come, almost without exception, from academia, and they often come with a solid pedagogical competence in their backpack. This is exactly what I just said, too. You see that people who are coaches, right, they, they have so many athletes in their club system, so many athletes who grow up, and they, they go to NTNU, they go to, the, to the, um, the college that's right next to the Lynn Ski training facility. Oh, it's so cool. Like Lynn Ski's home course, it's next to a school that studies sports. You know, and you've got 10 or 11 kids, uh, young adults, male and female, in those classes every year. They're going to go on and become coaches and trainers, um, and, and so that's what it's about. You see, when you build it from the ground up, you'll, and you build the numbers of it, you'll, you'll find it. Number seven, last one, combination of top sports and education. There are long traditions for young athletes ages 15 to 19 to both train as athletes and receive an education with many studying part-time at universities and colleges throughout their sport careers. We have a number of sports-focused high schools all over Norway where top young athletes get to organize a holistic and good life while pursuing a sports career and education. This approach also gives young people access to skilled coaches in a particularly important development phase. Yeah, I like that. I think to me that gets a little bit too niche like I don't want my 16 year old choosing their life necessarily right there. I don't think that would have been beneficial for me. I knew from the time I was eight or nine that I wanted to do, you know, sports broadcasting. And then of course that changed to when I knew I wanted to be a music director. And then that changed to something else. And I had strong ambitions for my career all throughout my life. And had I chosen one of those paths that was like, okay, well we'll take you now and you can just focus on this um, that would have been bad. That would have been bad in the sense that I didn't get the well-rounded view that's made me a writer than I am today. I have experiences I can share and I can write about because I've lived a lot of different things. So I, I don't really like the idea of specializing kids at that young of an age, although I do think that is part of the reason why they can succeed in those sports. Because that, and, and maybe we need a little bit more of a shift there where we have some more like private academies kind of sprouting up. Hey, do you like skiing and you want to focus your training around that? Here's a school for it. And um, the problem is, is who's going to pay for that? How's that going to work? This is part of the reason where in pu- the public school system just needs a whole restructuring. That's a whole nother podcast, but they need, they need help there because if we had a, a sort of a freedom to make these, get these schools to sprout up around the country, it wasn't just $20,000 a year to go here and send your 16 year old there. Maybe it would work. But all right, long show, long show. Thanks for hanging with us. I hope I hope you found all these topics pretty interesting. I know it was a long show, but um, I I thought this was a f- lot of fun stuff to talk about here. Um, might be a while till my next one here as we have now wrapped up the season. 
but I guess I'll end it this way, you know, keep on skiing, keep on striving. McDonald's isn't the best place to find a runner, so Park is where I go. Slip on my half inch, splitting they drop it. We the best in Colorado. When you're running with our team, you better have fleet feet. And trust me, you don't have a chance now. When the gun goes up, you know I'm all amped up. And my mind is in a trance. Got me thinking like stepping, floating, flying through. Pushing the base on a run with ASU. You can't give me something new underneath my running shoe. Say Brooks says to run happy. Their shoes were handmade for somebody like me. Now I'm up in the lead, right in front of Hassan Mead. I'm in love with a running shoe. Going farther and harder than you. And apparently faster too. But you know we the mean new screw. Three feet and it's finally true. We never quit and we never threw. We got another surprise for you. Put me on that mic You know a ball hard You know a run far Give me that power bar You see this playing card I make it disappear I'm doing magic If you blink you'll miss I fear When the race is done There you are in the rear I'm crossing the tape Ain't nobody near me Solid gold fast times hot babes That's what I see I see me standing on the podium Sweating on my sodium Bleeding Gut busted Working harder for my team DJ Khaled All I do is win Man that's the theme Did you see me beating you up In a Facebook meme Your only chance to be a winner's In your dreams And Colin Nessa You got a problem Houston I'm a rocket Walking all the walks You know I just don't talk it I got my beats pill on a run You know it's in my pocket Coming to a big hill You know I never work Six say Sixocony These are the happy three Okay, on a, on a Nike's for Kipchoge Under Armour Revive Runners know that they said Mizuno New Balance is my brand Made in America And that's my man say Sixocony The Dean Coach D and the Cedar Quiz too. And then in the Wolf Pack, Zay's the top dog. Palmer's coming close, making sure he don't hog. The spotlight, Oscar's got his fashion right. Rich is gonna start a fight. Mickey's hammer's kinda tight. Squid's the athletic trainer, he'll make it right. Yo, Elijah, he's a little bruh, but he's pretty fast. He's a total star. In my last race, it was epic in the chase. The guard was leading my calf, bleeding cut from a spike. I ain't need no help to find my next flag. Though I might to find my spike bag. To Monica to run the 15 jet lag When I was in first grade I was the fastest at tag I was going so fast Told that car, get out of the way I passed him just like I did the city Get of the day Slicing through the wind like a skinny knife With a fish fillet My races are like art forms Better than